Hi, and welcome to Create Photography. This is Daniel. In today's episode, I will have a conversation with Australian-based photographer Morgana McGee. Morgana describes her work to be in between storytelling and expanded documentary, but based on the documentary tradition. Her work has been awarded and exhibited both nationally and internationally and recognized by institutions such as the British Journal of Photography, the National Portrait Gallery Australia and Miami Art Week. She regularly is commissioned for editorial and large-scale community arts projects. Her images have appeared in the New York Times, the New Yorker, the Guardian, the Age, Art and Australia magazine, amongst others. Morgana, welcome to Create Photography. I look very much forward to speaking with you today. Thank you so much, Daniel. It's a pleasure to have been asked. You are living and working on the foothills of the Dandenong Ranges in Australia. Now I'm not so familiar, and obviously I've never I've never been to Australia, and so oh, I, yeah. I just was curious if you could maybe describe yeah. to me and our listeners a little bit the landscape, your surroundings. and Yeah, most you, certainly. Where, yep. Um, so I live in Victoria, which is the, one of the southern states in Australia. It's on the southeast, um, and it's an interesting place. I am sort of on the outskirts of Melbourne, um, which is the, the big city that maybe some of your listeners might be familiar with. Um, but where I live is part of what was essentially like the urban sprawl, I suppose. So it, it was once all, obviously, it was owned by the traditional owners. It was a place that was um, has a lot of sacred significance. But in about the 1970s, um, urban sprawl started to happen. So where I live is relatively suburban, but hmm. I am so fortunate to be surrounded by over 500 hectares of um, national park, of protected land, um, which is the bush where I make a lot of, of my imagery. Yeah, it, it's, a, it's a really beautiful and inspiring place to live and it allows me to feel like I'm near nature but, but without a lot of the dangers that come from living directly in nature in Australia. So if I understand that correctly, so you said it's somewhat suburban, but mm -hmm. so for me to visualize that, are you saying is it a, sub a suburban of a of a city suburban, or is it like just houses with big lots, and then you know here's the next house, or is it? I think it's an interesting. I was thinking about this this morning. It's interesting with the way that the cities in Australia were set up because I, I suppose that there was pretty poor urban planning. Mm -hmm. um, so, so the actual sort of centre of the city and the inner suburbs of the city, I suppose, um, a, a lot of them mirror, especially Melbourne. They sort of mirror Europe in a lot of ways, but with because Australia has so much space the sprawl sort of happens in every single direction. So it's mm. quite bizarre to look uh, at any of the cities from the sky because you can just see how far out they stretch. So, yeah, certainly where I live, um, I have a like a big block of land. It, it's mainly just houses and bush. So mm. there's sort of not much else around here, which I quite like, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so basically, do you, do you go by foot 
to the national park you still have to drive or is i can go by foot or i can i can drive oh, okay. um yeah i've got the so it's option that close yes so it's, yeah oh, that's and wonderful I, i've interestingly even though it's it's very suburban a lot of people have horses around here so a lot of people sort of have double blocks um i quite often see some goats and, <laughs> and sheep um mm-hmm. so it, it's a really lovely place to live it's in a way suburban but yet has a a countryside feel to it maybe yes. yeah okay that, that that's that's super interesting that, that makes a lot of sense and sorry what was the closest city to you then um, uh melbourne. melbourne oh melbourne okay yeah. yeah so you said that yeah yeah okay yeah. got it got it okay wonderful so speaking of cities so i noticed you had an exhibit in hamburg in 2022 yes. and um so it's a city i often visit i was just first of all i was wondering if you were able to visit the city yourself or was it a virtual it was virtual. Okay. Um, unfortunately, okay. I would have loved to have gone because everything I saw of it looked incredible. Um, yeah. But alas, I was here, so I, I couldn't get over there. Yeah. So have you have you been able to visit in the past or not yet? Um, no, not yet. I spent in my 20s, I spent um, most of my time when I was traveling was I spent a lot of time in Mexico, actually. Mm. Um, it's a funny thing with Australia. As, as you mentioned, you haven't been able to visit yet because it is so far away. Yeah. <laughs> when, we tra- when we travel, yeah. we've really got to make it, you know, work for us. Mm-hmm. So when I... Yeah, my, I haven't actually yet really had the chance to explore Europe in the way I would like to. I sort of hope I'll get to do it um, in the coming years as as a lot of my – there seems to be a bit more interest in my work in Europe now, which is really lovely. Mm, but it is one of those things where I think if you didn't go there in your 20s backpacking like a typical Australian, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah you, you go at a different time in your life, which is what I'm hoping right. for. Yeah. Oh, wonderful! Yeah, if you ever so, hopefully you get to visit Hamburg sometime. Yes. Um, it is a it is a great city. Yeah, it's super fascinating in my view, and you know has the harbor and kind of that industrial side, but then it's well developed and a lot of yeah culture as well. Oh, it's beautiful. just interesting aspects mm. of the city and other aspects too. But yeah, so it's a it's a nice city and the water too in the city oh, with the, the the river. But anyway. So today I'm working a little bit in reverse, meaning that not starting with the beginning, but with some of your current projects, uh, and then maybe we can go back later. But um, I wanted to start, Morgana, with the project Never It Was, I believe, as it's called. And it's a project that explores quiet moments as a personal meditation on the beauty of melancholy, as it's described on your website. Would you would you mind just telling me a little bit more about the project? Yeah, certainly. So I began Never It Was. It would have been at the very start of 2020, which as we all know is the start was was the start of COVID. Um yep. but I began it just before uh COVID had kind of hit Australia. So where I live in Melbourne, um, we had quite an intense lockdown. Um, I think it was the longest lockdown in the world, maybe. Um, It ran for over two years. But just previous to that, I had, um, my husband and I had just moved. We had kind of reevaluated a few things in our life. And I started to think a little bit more on um, how I approach the world and how I see the world. So when I began Never It Was, it it sort of changed my practice because it was the beginning of me just simply starting to walk with my camera. Previous to that, and I will talk about it later, but previous to that, I'd been very firmly a documentary photographer and before that, a photojournalist. But I think something about having that extra time 
at that time in my life and then once COVID hit meant that I felt like I could kind of almost go back to indulging in photographing the world the way that I saw it. And something I'm I'm really interested in is how, you know, there was a shift, uh, you know, post-war to it globally um, and especially in Western cultures to happiness being kind of like the absolute goal um, for all of our lives, this kind of idea that we are eternally happy, that we are fulfilled, yep. <laughs> that, you know, that that is what we're all working towards. And um, mm-hmm. I am a person that is okay with melancholy and I certainly am um, in a lot of ways, quite a melancholy person. So this work was a way to sort of celebrate that, to look at those moments that are quiet and and beautiful, mm-hmm. but also very reflective. So that that was the kind of the genesis of the project. Can you tell me maybe a little bit more about some of the subject matter? I mean, obviously we will we'll link to it in our show notes, and, yeah. and people can look at the listeners can look look at it. But just curious from you know when. In your own words, I guess, if you wouldn't mind. Um, yeah, well, it's it's interesting because it was it was the start of kind of the way that I photograph now. But I've always had a, a really so I think I'm a person that like has essentially had three real loves in her life, and the <laughs> first love was animals. Like I'm one of those people that came out of the womb just loving animals, and I, I have a very a deep connection really with all animals. It's kind of a really nice understanding I think that can happen. And with that came a real love of being outside. So I, I walk a lot. I spend a lot, I'm much more comfortable being outside than inside, uh, which, mm-hmm. which mm-hmm. makes life sometimes a bit difficult. But if I could be outside under a tree, <laughs> if I could be outside <laughs> under a tree, I've said that to my students. I teach and I say that to my students. Sometimes we just go outside for me to teach because oh, I yeah. can't, you know, I'm, the walls are mm-hmm. coming in. And then another great love of my life is is my lovely husband. But then I guess a huge driving force in who I am and maybe maybe it's the same for you and possibly is and a lot of your listeners is photography. So so once I discovered photography, things really shifted for me um, and this work was a chance to kind of bring all of that together. So the subject matter, a lot of it is landscape that I found on my walks. I have images of my niece and nephew in there as well, Athena and Hector, who I absolutely adore and, and I photograph subsequently for other series as well. And then animals, um, animals that I would meet on my walks, animals that I, yeah, would just approach and and um, they would give me a little nuzzle or a little hello and I would kind of quite uh, gently make images of them. All of the work is black and white. It was a big shift back to black and white for me as well um, because there's there's just something about the abstraction I think that black and white brings that kind of mirrors the way that I see the world. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, that was kind of the... I don't know if that's painted a picture for your, your um, no, it listeners. No, did. it actually really well. No, this is wonderful. This is very helpful. Was this something where, you know, you did mention when you first described the project, you know, you kind of had, there was a little bit of a shift and obviously it was start of COVID and all this and you, you walked around more. Was it, um, when did you know this was a project or did you kind of know ah. from the get-go or is that, that's kind of the the general question here, I guess. The underpinning question is, or underlying, I should say, um, how do you go about projects? <laughs> That's such a wonderful and big question. I think that what it is is um, because my so my background. Um, I'm, and I'm sorry if this skips ahead for some of your questions, but my background was as as a photojournalist. So I 
I studied photography and then I, I left um, my studies and I, I got a job almost immediately at a newspaper, which was incredible. And I, I was sort of a, you know, a junior and I had to work my way up. That was sort of the foundation of my commercial work for a very long time. But when I had been studying, I definitely gravitated more towards work that was slower. Um, so that would work that had a real um, kind of slow burn connection with the subject matter. And I think that what happened with Never It Was, was it was a chance for me to kind of reconnect with that way of photographing. So when I began making the images, I could see that something had, I, I could feel it. I could feel that something had really shifted in the way that, mm. that I was working. It wasn't as research-based as it had been in the past either. I, I just had this, oh, Daniel, it was just beautiful. I could just go out and make images on my own terms and it was incredible. Mm-hmm. I would come home and, and pack all my stuff up, develop films if I'd shot on film and then um, work through a kind of a strange process of of digitising them and it just felt so... Um, enriching in a way that mm-hmm. I, the, the other work that I'd, I'd had, um, because it was more complicated, the other work I was dealing with people and stories, it never quite hit in the same way. So it almost didn't matter that it was a project just because I was enjoying it so much. It felt completely intuitive, which was a complete shift in the way of working and something that was very luxurious and something that I'm very grateful for, though I um, I certainly know that the lockdowns were very difficult for a lot of people in my city and, of course, COVID is awful. But I think having that time and space, um, yeah, was just transformative for me. Mm-hmm. And you, you mentioned something that keeps coming up quite a bit and that I think about a lot is the intuitive part, um, which is always interesting to me, right? And and it's this, maybe, should I, I don't want to say there's a, a tension, but you know, there's, there's always the concept of your conceptualizing the images, a pre, you know, Ansel Adams, I think used to say pre-visualization of your images, which, you know, can happen in the moment too, right? But, but what I'm trying to say, I guess, is do you feel like that shift that you're describing was truly a shift from going, you know, with photojournalism, uh, journalism, I guess you're just in the moment, you may have assignments and things like this, so you have to, maybe there's some planning involved and so forth. Is it a shift in that sense or is it, or, or is it just, is the shift really the, the way you, your workflow, so to say, or how you, I mean, maybe the subject matter too, but yeah, just I guess I'm just curious what what you think the shift was. <laughs> you know, actually, what I th- it's something that I what I think the shift was was having the space just to see. I think that when you work commercially in whatever field it is that you're working in, um, you're so driven by making images. And when I worked as a photojournalist, yes, it's very, very fast paced. I have to also say I'm, I wasn't a very good photojournalist no. because <laughs> I would want to get to know people and talk about their stories, but I would have 10 jobs to do that day, you know. So um, I don't know that my editors were that impressed with me, to be honest. Oh, yeah. But I, um, I think that quite often... Yeah, what I kind of missed in that work was having the chance just to be able to see. And I still work very quickly. Like um, I don't go out and photograph with people often, but when I do, they're kind of alarmed at how quick I am. But I I, I think just having that space to see and, and having that little bit of, 
you know, permission to watch the light change and to return to a place again and again. Mm-hmm. To me, that felt much more aligned with why I got into photography, I think. Um, and it's when I'm making images, I, I I don't know if this happens to you, Daniel, but when I'm making images in this kind of vein of way of working, it's almost like I, I, I go into, I don't go into a trance, but I become very calm. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's something that I think, especially in COVID, was quite addictive because everything yep. was so unknown and so scary. So to be able to just kind of go into myself and and make images for an hour or half an hour, whatever it was, felt really, yeah, it felt like it, it just sort of shifted something really quite deeply inside of me. Yeah, that's, that's super interesting. Yeah, and, and I, well, you know, just to, Quickly on that topic, from my perspective, I've mm. had these these situations where I, for me, it's in landscape usually when when I lose when I basically forget about time and really am in the moment. <laughs> Those are probably the best for me personally, at least the best moments when you're just kind of in that, and and hopefully then the you know some the light and everything works out. But you know it, it is these type. So I've I've seen that, or I've experienced that in in, in uh, definitely in landscape photography. Can't say necessarily with other photography, which you know all depends. But anyway, so yeah, it's it's very interesting. Mm. And I think it's sort of addictive as well, isn't it? It's I I I never really for someone who, like I said, almost has a aversion to being inside. I never really photographed landscapes up until this series. Um, which was, yeah, which was, well, actually there was a series previously that I did for my master's where I started photographing the landscape and it was like I suddenly realised what everyone had been saying all these years. Yep. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's why everyone does it. This is lovely. That's, that's great. And, and you mentioned, so, so you said this, is this series or this project never it was all film or did you mix and match things? Uh, I mean, you know, uh, you never it was. It, well, Never It Was was a combination. Um, Subsequent series have been shot all on film. Um, And the reason it was a combination was simply because it became very difficult to get film um, Mm. with Mm. everything being shut. But also there was, I think at the time, I might be completely wrong, but I think there were some issues, uh, shipments coming to Australia. I feel like it could have been at the time that there was an issue with one of the tankers getting stuck. And so... You know, film isn't manufactured in Australia anymore. Everything is imported, um, I think, from Asia. So, yeah, it, it was just really difficult to get it and to get chemicals to develop became very difficult as well. Yeah. I want to shift to a um, – now we're shifting to <laughs> – we're shifting to a different project. Um, let's talk about your project Extraordinary Experiences uh, that yep. started in 2020 as well. Yeah. So also in the middle of COVID. Mm, yes. And you you described the project with the adjective, uh, adjective haunt, haunting, um, meaning yes. a feeling of, or uh, let's just say, meaning a feeling or memory or impression having qualities that linger in the memory. So tell me more about that, that project, Extraordinary Experiences. Yes, that project began in 2020. And it was interesting because I was sort of photographing it in tandem with never it was um, because I think that initially extraordinary experiences was sort of born out of that same um, ability to be able to walk around and see, 
But what happened um, in 2020 is obviously there were huge global losses, but within my own social circle, uh, people that I knew were starting to experience like a very like significant deaths for the first time. Um, and I had, my father died when I was 25, 25 yet. Yeah. My brother and I were both um, carers for him. So I, I'd had a kind of a, a connection with mortality from quite a young age. Mm-hmm. And I found that as losses started to happen, people would want to speak to me about losses and about trying to understand what actually happens to the body when you're grieving and what happens to the mind when you are grieving. And this work was made in a response to that and the idea that that being haunted by remnants of the past is not always necessarily a scary thing or a bad thing. Sometimes it can give, give, bring you really great comfort. And the title actually comes from, it's a psychological term about, I think, I think there's seven different extraordinary experiences you can experience when, when someone who you're very close to passes away or someone that you love dearly or someone you were caring for. And one of them is that you can actually see an apparition of the person and I don't hmm. mean that you you feel like you see them it's it's you actually your eyes tell you that they're in front of you hmm. um and it's when it happened to me it scared oh it scared the bejesus out of me I didn't oh, know yeah. what was happening <laughs> I thought I thought I was uh-huh. going crazy but but then with friends who were suffering this loss I would sort of gently warn them and say look this happened to me and it, it was incredible because then they would say to me it, it had happened to them as well. And a lot of them said to me, they felt comfort knowing that they weren't going crazy because, you know, I'd been able to have this conversation with them about it. So the work is a celebration, I think, of grief as well. Mm. Um, yeah, mm-hmm. that was that was kind of the genesis of that work. And if you wouldn't mind, Morgana, describing like with the previous project, just a little bit of the, the subject matter and what you what you've been capturing in this project and it's still ongoing right is that correct yes or? yeah, yeah. Okay. i okay. i um the so the subject matter it's interesting actually because the subject matter is probably exactly the same it's a lot of landscape <laughs> oh, okay. and, 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 and animals um but the difference was with extraordinary experiences it's all shot on film mm. but what i was doing when i was shooting was because i didn't have access to a scanner at that time I would photograph the negatives when they were still wet. I'm a very impatient person. I don't know if I'm painting a great picture of myself here for everyone. I don't <laughs> like being inside. I'm very impatient and I <laughs> I um I was a bad photojournalist, but I um <laughs> I would photograph the negatives when they were wet quite often or dusty or and I started to see these it was just like magic. These things that would start happening um, to the negatives that I that I never could have imagined. I I couldn't have mm. conceptualized it in that way that we were speaking about. And I started to think, well, there's something really interesting with film because it and photography in general captures what we quite often don't see. Um, mm-hmm. So the images all have light leaks or extreme grain or watermarks on them or sometimes chemical marks on them, um, which almost feel like interventions on the imagery. So the images are very dark. The animals that I photographed as well, um, in between the lockdowns, I would seek out animals. So I, I photographed um, dingoes, who are Australia's native dog. I photographed owls. I photographed deers, um, which 
though deers are absolutely beautiful in Australia, they're pests. Um, mm-hmm. So it was a chance for me to, I photograph cats. I photo, I think there's, no, there's no dogs in there, but I photograph cats because I think cats are fascinating because their eyes are able to see a different spectrum than the human eye. So, mm-hmm. you know, cats will quite often get really spooked and start staring at something and they're not, it's like they're looking through you and they can see another mm-hmm. thing. And, and, and I thought that kind of mirrored what I was doing in my photography. So the work is the work is darker. It is It looks darker and I think a lot of people would describe it as being a lot darker. But for me, the work is a real connection to actually the positive things that can come out of grief, the kind of deep knowing that it can give you. Talking a little bit about style and maybe... Maybe style is not even the right word for this, but what I'm trying to ask you next. But but I did notice your personal projects are a mixture of black and white and also color. And we talked a little bit about, you You talked already a little bit about black and white and, and mm-hmm. obviously some of the pro- the latest projects we talked about extraordinary experiences was black and white and was film. So can you tell me a little bit more what draws you to one versus the other meaning? black and white or color? I think that I see in black and white, to be honest. I think that I am, I actually think I'm rubbish <laughs> at photographing color in a lot of ways because for me, color, um, and a lot of the work that I've done in color is very representative of the world. So a lot of my documentary work um, was color. It was still film, but it, it was color um, to give that really true but slightly warm rendition. My master's work, which is all the things unsaid, was all shot in colour and that was a a shift for me from working in kind of this very consistent way. I used to photograph a lot with um, a Rolleiflex with 6.6 and in my master's work I started photographing in the most ridiculous way possible, which is using 8 by 10 which I like is wonderful, but I don't highly recommend <laughs> that yeah, anyone. It's a little, st- it's just, it's, a yeah. little awkward it's a, to do that. <laughs> uh, yeah. A little awkward is a lovely way of putting it. It is. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bit of a nightmare. And um, yeah. for me, I, I also like to extend myself as a photographer technically. So I study, I began photography when I was 17, 18, and, and I began um at that time where there was a shift between film and digital. So digital cameras, when I um, began studying, were so expensive. Like they were, you know, $10,000 and they were probably one megapixel and I didn't understand them. I I didn't grow up. I'm in that generation where I had the internet but we weren't, like, and I'm, you know, great with technology, but it certainly wasn't an everyday part of my life as a child. So for me, having a digital camera, at that age didn't really make sense because I was like, but I don't, I don't want to be making numbers in a keychain. I want to be making darkroom prints. So when I, when I shifted to color, a lot of that was about um, my commercial work as well as a photojournalism in Australia is, is quite different to anywhere else in the world because we don't have a lot of big news outlets. Um, And because the, the daily news here kind of has to service a very big country, you end up photographing all sorts of things, lots of human interest stories. And, and that was always in colour as well. That had that had to be in colour. So I think for me now, interestingly, actually, I tried to shoot some colour the other day and it was so terrible. It was so <laughs> bad. Um, I think there's something about the way that I fell in love with photography, with it being black and white and being in the dark room that has just really honed the way that I see the world. 
it's interesting because I teach and I quite often say to my students, which we all are very guilty of when we start photographing and especially digitally, they'll take a really boring photo and they'll just make it black and white. And I'm like, don't, yeah. that didn't fix it. Now it's just right. a boring black and white photo. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but I think being able to, yeah, I I've almost feel like the way that I see as a photographer now is, is just in black and white. Um, so that's, yeah, that that's kind of been a huge shift for me as well and something that I really love being able to um, explore. Let's let's do a quick digression into mm-hmm. technical stuff, which I don't yes. usually do a lot, but I'm I'm just curious because you mentioned a couple of things that I'm also doing, namely film, and then also exploring. I explore a little bit of large format oh, photography, four by five, not eight by ten. But <laughs> so <laughs> now, just curious. So first question: film. Is there a particular black and white film stock that just is your go-to or do you kind of are pretty open to yeah i mean i know there's you know or only so many available although now we have more but if i could live a life where i could have all the film in the world and i could have a fully stocked fridge it would be triex i love kodak okay. triex and i don't know yep. you know a lot of other photographers had said to me there's no point using any other film um however mm-hmm. In Australia, anyway, it is much more expensive and the boxes mm-hmm. have less, much, many less sheets of film in them. So I moved to Ilford HP5, which comes in yep. a box of 25. I'm just looking at a box here right now as I speak to you. Yep. So that has now become, so it's HP5, it's 400 speed, and that has now become my kind of go-to film when I shoot 4.5. When I shoot 8.10, 8.10 film, the cost of 8.10 film in Australia is um insane it is so high and it's very very hard to get here but i have been shooting fp4 when i've been shooting um eight by ten which has been really lovely actually really really lovely um and and when i shoot very bad color (laughs) um it's always portra (laughs) 400 yeah you listed just some of my favorite films Uh (laughs) especially the well what about 35 millimeters since we're still in the technical digression? Ooh, um, I, you know what? I haven't shot 35 millimeter film. I probably for 20 years, to be honest. Um, yeah. Once when I, when I was shooting six, uh, six, it was all Kodak uh, portrait. Actually, maybe it has no 15 years. I'd say since I shot 35 mil and when I shot 35 mil, it was always Tri-X as well. Okay, I love Tri-X. Okay. It's a fantastic film. I just wish it was a bit cheaper and easier to get in Australia. And they're just raising prices again, I heard. Oh, so, yeah. So I was, oh, good. I, I was stocking <laughs> up a little bit. <laughs> oh, gosh. It's just too, yeah, it's, it's, uh, um, so, so then do I understand this correct? Do you still, but are you still doing med- medium format or, or not at all? Is no, I actually, my poor little Rolleiflex is sitting behind me getting some dust okay. on it. Um, there, there was something, once I started shooting 810, which as I said, I love, but is, it is difficult. The camera is so heavy. The tripod is so heavy. It, this is going to sound really silly, but once I shifted, because I'd use the 810 um, all through my masters, mm-hmm. and once I shifted to 4.5, honestly, it's almost as easy as taking a photo with a phone for me. Like just the, yep. just the difference, I think, in the weight of the camera, the ease of setting it up meant that that quite often my process is I walk my dog in the morning, I take my tripod, I take my camera, I take a backpack full of dark slides and make images as we go. I think for me shooting film, part of it is the process and the enjoyment of it. I love the alchemy of it. I absolutely love mm-hmm. that. But I also think now with the way that I use film, because I love those imperfections, because I love 
light leaks because I, mm-hmm. I'm i not trying to make an image that looks perfect because if I want to make a perfect image, I'll use a digital camera because why not? They're easy and they're, you know, they're so much more affordable than they used to be. Mm-hmm. But there's something about the kind of experience of shooting film, which is, is really important for me. So mm-hmm. shifting to, I, I mean, I, I have piles and piles of 5.4 negatives here, um, like it's it's crazy how much I've been able to shoot <laughs> in the last couple of years and being able to work quickly. So my photographs of animals are either 8 by 10 or 5.4, which I know probably makes me sound like a crazy person. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> there's something about <laughs> – Or nuts, one or the other. But there's something yeah. about that that challenge, I think, mm-hmm. of being able to to get a photo which couldn't have been taken on, on my phone quickly you yep. can't steal photos with film. It's a it's a right. different sort of an experience because you really need to kind of immerse yourself in the yep. space when you're shooting in the larger formats. It's interesting though, a friend of mine, a brilliant photographer, Tobias Titz, who is uh, based in Australia but has a German background, he shoots hmm. um, that peel-apart Polaroid film where you get the negative. I can't quite remember what it's called. Oh, yeah. Is that still available or...? Well, this is the thing. It's not really. So he scours eBay for it and his work is – I might um, – I'll send you a link to his work. His work is oh, gorgeous. Oh, yeah, that would be wonderful. Yep. But it's so much a part of his practice and, you know, it makes me sad because he's he's um, he's probably my age but it, it's sort of like he's going to have to shift his practice once the film goes. Yeah, and, and just I think do something else. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and I think that's an interesting thing for those of us who've been working in film for a while. Um, mm-hmm. It's something that I think about. I think, like, gee, it might not be around for my whole career, and that's a sort yeah. of a strange, strange feeling, isn't it? When when yeah. we when oh, yeah. yeah when I started, it was an absolute, and now it has become more and more niche. Right. There's there's been a. Obviously, there has been a resurgence too mm. right after, but you know, at the same time, it does get more expensive and mm. so forth. But it is encouraging that also it seems that younger people are getting yes. into this too. So, so I think yes. hopefully there'll be a, I think as long as there's a market demand, I think there'll hopefully be some something available. But yes. Yes, I think um, it's it's interesting. (laughs) It's interesting with younger. A lot of my students have started shooting film, which has been really Mm. lovely as well. I I don't have a dark room at the university that I work at, but we've got some really good scanners. And it's been really lovely watching them because I guess for people in their generation, everything has been documented and they photograph Mm -hmm. everything. So kind of it's almost like a a reflex for them. You know, they see something, Mm -hmm. they photograph it. So I think for them, they find even 35 mil film, they find it so much slower and so exciting to to have that anticipation of waiting. Um, And you're right. I hope that is what keeps the industry going. I really do. Let's shift gears to your portraits a little bit. Mm. Um, So. You have a portrait section on, on your website that we'll mm-hmm. link to under commissioned work, selected portraits. Um, and they are, in my opinion, all very strong. I think I sometimes they might be haunting. <laughs> I, and, and, you know, personally, I love doing portraits. I'm certainly not considering myself a portrait photographer. Um, and I, I really do think having, you know, obviously done portraits myself still, um, I think it is a difficult it's it's something that's on the surface seemingly so simple, mm-hmm. yet so hard to capture a strong portrait. And so, so I'm kind of 
curious, well, first of all, what are your thoughts about that? And then secondly, um, how do you go about your portrait work? And just tell us more about that. Oh, I think, I actually think you're com everything you said is completely true. I think portraits will, will forever remain for me the hardest thing to photograph. I think the good thing about the training that I had at the newspaper um, when I started photography, I was quite shy. I mean, I was a kid. I was a teenager. I was quite shy and quite introverted, as a lot of photographers are, I think. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, when you work in the news, that doesn't cut it. So I had to sort of learn yeah. <laughs> to, to to step out of myself and be quite confident. And as a young woman, had to learn how to command a room. And they, they were great skills to learn. But I think also what it taught me is that in order to be, in order to get what I needed out of people when I photograph them, I need to sort of present the best version of myself. So when I turn up to photograph someone, they don't get melancholy Morgana. <laughs> <laughs> they get they get someone who is, um, and I'm, I'm a very curious person. I, I like people mm. and I'm friendly, but I I make an effort to talk to people to get to know mm -hmm. them to find out what's happening in their life and to, to try and make a connection, whatever that may be. It, it could mm -hmm. be uh, if I'm in someone's house and they have an animal, well, then it's it's set because I love animals so much. That's always a connection. Or it could be if they're, if they're going through something in their life. I, pho I photographed uh, a commission uh, with a major children's hospital here and making portraits of people when their children are seriously ill and possibly not going to make it is certainly not um, something that I took lightly but I think mm -mm. being able to con connect with people and talk to them about my experiences of caring for a parent um, really helped. But mm -hmm. but I think when you make a portrait, you need to present the best version of yourself. So I come mm. in and I'm my most patient and kind and generous version of myself. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that really helps with portraiture because I, I also understand that you know, Daniel and I, before this um, this podcast, we'd say, I'd said that I don't really like talking about myself, but I also know <laughs> that most people don't like being photographed. It, it is mm -hmm. quite an, it can be a very intrusive thing and I acknowledge that as well. But sometimes I have to do a job and there's, there's nothing I can do about it. I just have to get, I have to take a photo of someone. So I try and go mm -hmm. in with the approach that if I am gentle and I am kind and I make them feel like, being photographed isn't stealing part of their soul, then yeah, then I can I can walk away and I can feel good about what I've done as well. I never want to walk away from uh, photographing someone or something and think that I've left I've left a bad taste or I've left a kind of a lingering mistrust there. So it it's actually very important to me when I and I, it's part of the reason I don't really photograph portraits that much anymore because I felt like almost energetically it took so much um, out of me to to be able to make images in a way that I felt was ethical and fair. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's a wonderful description. Yeah, that's exactly what I, my follow-up questions would have been exactly around that <laughs> process that you already answered, which is great. Um, so basically the the opposite of a paparazzi. <laughs> oh, yeah. Do you know what's say, funny? Right? <laughs> I actually, the, the paper that I worked for sent me to do paparazzi work one day and that's when I stopped being a photojournalist because I was so bad at it and <laughs> I felt awful for the person I was photographing. Yeah. I was just a sports person who'd done something silly and I, I just thought this image doesn't need to be in the world and I certainly don't need to be taking it. So, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. you live and you learn. Yes. <laughs> So here's another question. I, what is some of the work 
some of your work that you are most proud of or that maybe perhaps or most gratifying? Oh, that's a big <laughs> question. I think, so my master's work, All the Things Unsaid, I don't know that it's necessarily my strongest work, but it was, it, yeah, I keep talking about these big shifts, don't I? But it was a big shift for me to photograph my family and to photograph my life and to allow myself to be vulnerable. So though, as I said, I don't think it's the best work I've made and I made it into a photo book for my master's presentation and I look at it now and it, it's not, I mean, it's, it's, I had a designer help me. It's beautifully designed, but it's certainly, um, yeah, it could have, it could have done with a serious edit, but I'm proud of it. I'm proud of being able to shift mm-hmm. my work like that. And I think for me, anytime I make images, images of animals are very important to me. Images where I feel mm-hmm. like I can, um, Something that I'm I'm actually studying around now and something I think about so much is consent in photography. So, hmm. you know, when you take a portrait of someone, they need to quite often they need to sign a consent form, but also they need to cons- the way I work anyway, they need to consent. I need to know that mm-hmm. they are as okay as possible with me being there, especially if they're having a hard time in their life. I'm actually really interested in extending that idea of consent to animals as well hmm. because I hmm. think and I'm actually, I've just started a PhD on this topic, so it's something mm. that I is very much in my my brain space. But mm. I think the way that I don't know if it's the same, maybe it's the same in other parts of the world, and, and possibly in Europe when people go into the wilderness. But because the Australian wildlife is so unique and so beautiful, and so it, it can it can feel like it's abundant in certain places, even though it's not. Unfortunately, you know, people will desperately want a photo of a kangaroo. And they will almost chase an animal down just to get a photo of a kangaroo. Mm-hmm. And I, I quite often think of that paparazzi thing, actually. And I think, I yeah. don't know if you'd do that to a, would you do that? Maybe they would do that to a person. Maybe they'd do that to a famous mm-hmm. person. But it's just not the way that I think. What I find really interesting about photographing animals, especially with large format, is I sort of think they, I don't know, it's almost like they have to agree because they have to stay mm-hmm. still they have to um, be patient with me and put up with me. So anytime I can make a large format image of an animal, I feel really good about myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel like, mm-hmm. okay, this is I'm doing something good and I'm doing something that, yeah, is is not putting anything bad into the world. And, and having the opportunity to share a moment with an animal as well in that way feels really, really special. I'm very grateful actually when I can make images like that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It just made me think of um, when you when you mentioned this. The other opposite would be the 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 the, the photographer in the cheap on a, in a safari chasing mm. some giraffes and elephants yes. and who knows what, right? And and so that's another kind of troubling <laughs> well, thing. You know, well, thinking I, of consent, right? It's the yeah. opposite. Well, and I think it's also, I guess it's part of the way that I see the world is that we share the world. I don't think that, I don't know, I don't know that humans are at the top of the food, like we might be at the top of the food chain, but I don't know that we are what we think we are quite often in the world because most animals, you know, where possible can live their life pretty happily without any human interaction and have been doing so for millions of years on this planet. Yeah, I guess for me making images of animals has to feel very reverential because I think they are so special and I think especially with Australian wildlife because Australia has a very uneasy relationship with wildlife, unfortunately, which has come from a Mm. colonial mindset. 
Yeah, it's something that I find really, really fascinating. There's a there's a mm. place off the coast of Western Australia called Rotnest Island, which maybe some of the listeners might have heard of, and it's a it's a small island that um, is home to a very small species of kangaroo called a quokka, <laughs> which oh, okay. is um, if if anyone Google's it, you're going to come up with all these images of this sweet little animal. It's sort of well, it's like a very small kangaroo. It almost looks a bit like a rabbit as well. But (laughs) in this particular space, um, they're so used to humans and humans feeding them, which they're not meant to do. They will come up to humans and it's become a real trend at the moment for people to get a selfie with a quokka. So even if you you look through Instagram, people are there and the quokka looks like it's smiling. It makes this very (laughs) cute expression. But actually that's the animal showing stress. It's not, it's not anything um, about the animal enjoying the experience. And and I think for me, that's a really interesting thing as well. The way that we can project ourselves onto the natural world as well, the way that we can um, choose to see a landscape or choose to see an animal in a way which, yeah, we use our hierarchy as animal, as humans, sorry, to dominate. Even, even, you know, when an animal's showing stress, it's like, oh no, they're being cute and they're smiling. Well, animals don't smile. They're, Mm. <laughs> but but yeah. we want to attach these things to them. So mm. that's increasingly something I'm really fascinated in because what role does photography have in that? And as you said, I I mean I've never been on safari and I think I would I would struggle to see people doing that because maybe it's another form of hunting as well. Yeah. A, a much less dangerous one, but in a way it is, right? In a yeah. way maybe one could argue, but <laughs> And I I yeah. think um I think there's something to to capturing images and to collecting. And I think, as I said, a, a lot of photographers are probably quite introverted and shy. And the way that we choose to photograph is about our our way of, of yeah, capturing moments and collecting moments. Mm-hmm. But but I think as I get further along in my career, I'm just really conscious of what that means for who or what I photographed as well. So, mm-hmm. and that's p- possibly why I I'm I don't shoot many portraits anymore because this this is right. these are very big questions that can be a bit crippling sometimes. Right, right. Well, it's interesting, right? When you think about it, we we use language like shooting. I mean, I use it too, right? Mm. Shooting a photograph, but it, mm. it, which is also the analogy to sh- you know shooting a a gun in a safari yes. or whatever, right? So yeah. it's it's kind of a, I mean, it has that element, which is interesting, that, that hunting and gathering <laughs> in photography, yes. yeah. could be a whole other conversation. Yes, but, definitely. The, the, the but, next podcast. <laughs> yes, the next podcast. <laughs> we can go deeper on that. But um, yeah, so, so tell me more about your, so I didn't know about your, your plans for the PhD. So mm. is that, is that in the human science i mean what kind of uh, social sciences or what's the um what's the degree going to be under which umbrella so it is sitting as a creative practice phd at the moment so i'm i'm studying in in a school of art here in melbourne and it's very fresh i've just started but what i'm interested in as well is how photography has been used uh as a way to kind of weaponize colonization against animals so that the representation Mm. and specifically of kangaroos because i think like i would assume daniel if you've seen a kangaroo it would have been in a zoo right maybe they have kangaroos and zoos where you're yeah pictures (laughs) yeah well of course but this is the thing because they're such um fascinating and beautiful and intelligent creatures and in australia wildlife tourism i mean 
post-COVID, it might have evened out a little bit, but it contributes something like $30 billion to the economy. So mm. most people come to Australia. My, my foreign exchange students, my international students will say to me, where can I go and see a kangaroo? Where can I go and mm. see a koala? Where can I go and be around these incredible animals, you know? But mm. within Australian society, it just doesn't quite gel. And the the urban sprawl actually, so even sort of places that I live, though it was built in the 70s, have meant that animals' habitats, the habitat loss here is astounding. So this PhD is looking at how photography has kind of contributed to these these truths and mistruths around animals and around around some of those things that we attach, like the idea that the quokka is smiling when they are stressed or, yeah. or yeah. quite often people will say to me that kangaroos are so dangerous. They're not dangerous at all. They've, they're, there's been one kangaroo death in the last 100 years versus, you know, dogs who yeah and I adore dogs I absolutely adore yeah, dogs yeah. dog dogs maul and kill people every year and humans kill people every year so to yeah. think that an animal can be demonized in that way for agriculture is something that I find really interesting because I think that I think and I'll be able to tell you in three and a half years but I think <laughs> that photography has had a part to play in this in in representation mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I'm really interested in exploring that. And then I assume this is obviously then involves a lot of writing or you need to probably write yes. papers and this and that. Okay. Yes. Okay. Yeah, I have to get my academic hat on, and um, yeah. <laughs> which is, is interesting as well because I come from this place where I photograph quite intuitively, but I yeah. am interested in, in a lot of the, the bigger questions around photography, probably more interested than I realize quite. Actually, even having this chat, I've realized <laughs> – how much, um, how important it is to me that we're asking ourselves these questions as well yeah. as we make images, just to be ethical, good humans, you know? Yeah, yeah. So I have a few more questions before we yeah. wrap up. And then I think, um, so So the next one is, do you have any new projects planned in the near future? Obviously, you're starting a PhD. That's a huge project. <laughs> yeah. So, but bis- bis- maybe more photographically speaking. I've got a, a, another book coming out um, in July, mm. which is called, uh, the title's quite funny, but it's called uh, Beware of People Who Dislike Cats, which is something mm. that my... Yep. Um, my my father's side of the family is Irish. It's something my granny used to say to me. And I don't know if it's an Irish saying. She always says it was. <laughs> but the, the work is around the idea of, you know, cats are, are not animals that we can control by any means. And mm-hmm. as I said, they they see things differently to us, but also their relationship with us is is different than a lot of other domestic animals. But I think, like, to be able to to love a cat is to kind of know that you need to give up that control and to kind of be able to trust in nature. So this new body of work that um, will be released in July is centered around that idea, that idea of of understanding that there are things that are beyond our control and finding a lot of comfort in that. So it is sort of the the carry-on from extraordinary experiences in some ways, but Mm. for me, extraordinary experiences is quite hopeful and magical. Whereas beware of people who dislike cats, I think is for me, feels a bit more somber, and there's a bit more of that mm-hmm. tension of of our position of as humans in the world and our understanding of the life cycle and and my understanding of my mortality as well. So it's a lot of it's black and white. It's all black and white. Sorry, a lot, mm-hmm. some of it mm-hmm. isn't with shot with Polaroid with the peel apart film. I was able to get a little bit of it. Um, oh, cool! Very expired, but very beautiful, and yeah, r- really lovely way to photograph. And then as far as projects beyond that, I'm kind of in tandem with the PhD, I'm looking at um, photographing some of the introduced species to Australia. So Hmm. 
um, foxes and um, deer who I photograph a lot, um, cats obviously who were introduced. And though I, I'm, I, I have a cat, I adore cats, but cats in Australia need to be kept inside because they are so dangerous. They really are sort of an apex predator here. Oh, they are the predator. They're not being... Uh, no, they're not. No. Oh, well, okay. I I think here it's human intervention that can um, okay. can hurt them. But essentially, all the poor little animals in Australia were living so happily for millions and millions of years. <laughs> and then there were natural predators here. There was the um, what's known as a Tasmanian tiger, which was pretty yep. quickly brought to extinction. Dingoes, but dingoes mm -hmm. are, are controlled in a way in Australia, which is is very strange. Mm. So yeah, in in a sub suburban setting, a cat, a little sweet house cat, is the number one apex predator. So birds mm. and possums and geckos and and all sorts of oh, wow. creatures can be there and you know come to their <laughs> untimely end. So I'm I'm interested in that as well. Yeah. So I think that that will be the 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 next project. So continuing with animals, but also looking at at perhaps looking at them in a less, um, maybe looking at them a little bit more scientifically, I think. Yep, yep, yep. Yeah, that might, that's super interesting. And then all you're planning, all of that in four by five, it sounds like. Or, yes, or yep. eight, ten. Okay. I've, I've got a big, beautiful or box eight, of eight, ten. Yep. So if, <laughs> yep. <laughs> why Wonderful. not? Let's just make things yeah, as difficult as possible. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. <laughs> Especially the cat, right? Well, oh, unless she's, she's sleeping or something. Or <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a lot of them, then that, that yes. helps too. But, yes, exactly. Um, there's one more technical question, since we talked mm. a little bit about your photography. Now, this is obviously, we have to then translate that for for us mortals who don't do four by five. Oh, yeah. <laughs> um, is your favorite focal length. Um so what's your, do you have a favorite for focal length when you go out there or is it, is it um, variable? It, it's pretty variable. Um, so, so I was gifted both cameras actually by a woman I used to work with and I don't have the option of, uh, on the 810, I don't have the option of changing lens. The 5.4 I do, but I've changed it once and then I couldn't change it back. <laughs> so mm, I've mm, sort of, okay. um, I've sort of just stuck with with what I use with the five four and and with photographing especially landscape. What I love as well is you can just get close, and that's a really mm -hmm. beautiful thing. Just knowing that you can yep. just move in in a way that I guess when you shoot thirty five mil, it's your body that moves closer. But what's interesting with shooting large format because you have to use a tripod, you have no choice, and yep. I I don't like it's I don't like tripods. I was never a very good studio photographer because I kind <laughs> of just get a bit grumpy. Um, yep. <laughs> but now I, I try to use the tripod as a little extension of my body, which is really nice. Yep. And so then, so then the focal length itself, is there like a particular one that for, for, for four by five, I don't know what's a common one, like 150 maybe, or is Yeah. That, so I, uh, I have a 150 on at the moment. A 150? So okay. yeah, okay. at the minute I do, I was looking at, I was actually looking at buying another lens, a 210, um, okay. But it was so expensive. I could, I just kind of yep. it was like four thousand Australian dollars. I was oh, like, oh wow. my gosh! Wow! Oh my gosh! Yeah, that's big. <laughs> so there, yeah. So so a hundred fifty then is I think it is close to a fifty and yes. thirty five yeah, millimeter. It's, is that correct? Equivalent. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Okay. That's good. That's a good good universal focal length. But um, well, good. All right. So my last question is is a simple one. Where can people best 
find you online? <laughs> oh, that's a really easy one. Um, yeah. <laughs> there's my website, which is morganamagee.com yep. or my Instagram, which is also morganamagee. Yeah, there, I, I update Instagram. I really love Instagram, actually. So I update it very, very regularly. So, And I always love to meet, yeah, meet and find new people on Instagram as well. That's a good place to get in touch with you if, if yes. people are so inclined. Okay, wonderful. Yes. Well, thanks so much for speaking with me today, Morgana. It was a lot of fun. Thank you so much, Daniel. It was really lovely to have the chat. I really appreciate you having me on. All right, this wraps up the episode with Morgana McGee. As always, you'll find links to the projects and her website and Instagram in the show notes. Thanks so much for listening and talk to you next time. Mm-hmm.